Well, this morning we are back in the book of Revelation. Turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. This morning we are in the church at Thyatira. title of this morning's message is Sin-Filled Church, Sentenced Church. When you think back through church history, what do you consider to be the worst thing that has happened to the church? Now, with a with this many of us in a, a room, we may have, you know, there might be 10 different ideas, 15 different ideas maybe in regard to what we might consider one of the worst things that has happened to the church. But most church historians would say that it happened during the first millennium. It was when the Roman Empire, under the authority of Emperor Constantine and his co-emperor, Emperor Licinius, in AD 313, accepted Christianity as a recognized religion. This did not make Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire, but it granted religious freedom to Christians within the empire, which they did not have before. Prior to this, the church faced extreme persecution, but under Constantine it enjoyed many years of free worship. Unfortunately, and unnecessarily, it led to, over time, an apathetic church. We must remember that it's it's not trials, it's not persecution, it's not poverty. Those things don't weaken the church. But it is when the church grows lethargic, when the church begins to lose its purpose, when the church begins to lose its understanding of worship. Over time, the church begins to grow weak, and it develops a hunger to be accepted and to be popular. One commentator speaking about Christianity's religious freedom in Rome has said this, quote, When that happened, when Christianity had freedom in Rome, the cutting edge of Christian witness was lost. Church leaders began to seek the world's honor and pursue the power and prestige that was possessed by government officials. Values were inverted. Luxury was sought. Morals grew lax. And believers began to match the acceptance that the world had given them with their own grateful acceptance of the world. End quote. So simply as the church, or rather as the world began to accept the church, the church began to accept the world. Worldliness flooded into the church. Today it's not so much government officials that we look at and desire to emulate. And when I say we, I, I mean that very broadly. But some in the church 
instead of seeking after government official status, it's music stars and rock stars and actors and actresses and socialites and the wealthy. Over the last 100 years, we have seen the mindset of pastors degrade into popularity contests and a good old boys club. Men who were more concerned with being cool than being holy. We've all witnessed this. We've seen this. If we've not been a part of, of their worship services and have not seen it firsthand, we've at least heard of it or seen it online. When this happens, compromise sets in. And then the toleration of that which God has commanded His church to stand apart from. The church tolerates sin when the church, or at least the majority of the church, accepts the unacceptable and ungodly expressions of worship. And and in that, we're not necessarily talking about singing, although that could be a part of it. Worship has to do with how the Christian lives life. When compromise and the toleration of ungodly practices enter into the church, the leaders of the church begin to make love and unity the litmus tests for faithfulness. Under this type of leadership, a local church may appear effective. Under this type of leadership, as a local church begins to evaluate itself, it may believe that it is doing rather rather well. It might be growing in number, and its reputation may be spreading among both believer and unbeliever alike as being something positive. But by this time, not just the local leadership, but the local church will fail to see what is bad because they have lost sight of what is truly good, what is truly God-honoring, what is truly worthy of God. Who knows how long it'll actually take for the church to fall, but in time it will fall and the Lord's judgment will come. Judgment begins with the house of God. This morning, as has been the case for the last three weeks now, we hear directly from Christ and his words to the church. This morning to the church in Thyatira, we're going to hear Christ's authority and his power, Christ's commendation and condemnation of this church in Thyatira, as well as its counsel, his counsel and his promises. The outline this morning is three points, and it's this, Christ's authority and power. Christ's authority and power in verse 18. In verses 19 through 24, Christ's commendation and condemnation. Christ's commendation and condemnation. Again, in verses 19 through 24. And lastly, Christ's counsel and promise. Christ's counsel and promise in verses 25 through 29. we get started this morning, let's consider the words, or let's consider the city 
Thyatira. There's not much told to us in the scripture about about this city. And, and even less about the church. But there is a lot of extra biblical information found by historians on this city, Thyatira, and the church that was in it. The letter to this church is the longest of all the seven churches. Though addressed to the church, in this, it, it, it is the smallest of the churches within the seven cities. And the city itself is the smallest. It was found by Alexander the Great, successor Seleucius of Syria, Seleucius I of Syria. And it was used as a military outpost. It guarded a key road that traveled north and south. It changed hands and was taken over by another one of Alexander's successors, Lysimachus, who ruled Pergamum. At this point, the city of Thyatira was really a buffer. And what I mean by that is, if Pergamum was to come under attack, Thyatira was a buffer. And so basically, Thyatira would come under attack first and give time for Pergamum to get all of its resources together so that it could fight whoever was attacking it. Essentially, Thyatira was expendable. Pergamum was not. Thyatira was destroyed many times throughout history and was, many, and was rebuilt many times as well. In 190 BC, Thyatira was defeated by Rome and enjoyed many years of Roman peace under Pax Romana. And during this time, it became a, a thriving commercial center. And this continued up to the time and, and for a time after Jesus' letter. Although, again, it was, a, it was a thriving commercial center, it was still very small in comparison to Ephesus or Smyrna. Thyatira was known for its trade. And it had many areas in which it traded. It was known for making and trading wool, linen, dyed materials, leatherwork, and bronze. In this city, there were many trade guilds, or what we might consider a, a labor union. There were associations for bakers, workers of bronze, cloth maker, or rather cloth makers, cobblers, weavers, tanners, dyers of cloth, makers of pottery, and slave dealers. All of these had guilds that helped to organize how they functioned, how they traded, how they manufactured, and how they worked together in the society of the city of Thyatira. These unions were very important in the ancient world and more than just an occupational association. It would have been extremely difficult for a Christian to make a living and not be a part of one of these unions. And if a Christian was a part of, of one of these guilds, it didn't just mean that they could buy and they could sell. But it meant that they would be pressured to take part in their social life, which would also include their worship. Each guild 
had a patron god or, or goddess, and the union would require honors be given to its god. In Acts 16, we're introduced to a woman living in Philippi who was Paul's first convert, and she was from the city of Thyatira. This woman named Lydia was a seller of purple goods. In the valley that contained the city of Thyatira was a plant, and its root was used to make the purple dye that Lydia used. This dye was still produced into the last century under the name of Turkey Red. Lydia would have been very familiar with these Thyatiran trade guilds, these labor unions. Unlike Ephesus, Smyrna, and Pergamum, Thyatira wasn't necessarily known for its religious worship, but it was still very pagan and full of pagan worship. The god of choice in Thyatira was the god Apollo, the Greek sun god. And during the time of Jesus' letter, the Jewish population was very small. And so Christians weren't opposed by Jews, which was the case in many of the cities. But here it was Greeks. Today, in the ancient city of Thyatira, there is a city there. And it's quite built up. It's called Akasar, with more than 100,000 people. But ancient Thyatira is in ruins. Although this newer city is bustling, there is no church and there are no known believers there as of 2018. It appears that the Lord did take away his lampstand. With that, let's see how Jesus begins his instruction and his encouragement to this church in Thyatira. Let's look at our first point this morning. Christ's authority and power. Now the church in Thyatira is known for tolerating sin. Jesus comes to call this church out. And in doing so, the first thing he does is refer to himself as the Son of God. This is the only reference in the book of Revelation that the Son of God is used. Jesus Christ being both fully God and fully man. It's quite striking that this is the only time, the only time that the phrase Son of God is used. Without trying to re-articulate what has been stated so beautifully and fully in the Athanasian Creed, let me read how the God we worship is explained as we consider the phrase, the Son of God. The Creed reads, We worship one God in Trinity, and the Trinity in unity, neither blending their persons nor dividing their essence. For the person of the Father is a distinct person. The person of the Son is another, and that of the Holy Spirit still another. But the divinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one. Their glory equal. Their majesty co-eternal. So much in. Just those few words. And again, that last portion is where I want to sort of draw our attention in. Again, the divinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one. Their glory equal. Their majesty 
co-eternal. It is that God. It is, it is our God. It is the Son of God who writes to this church. It is the Son who is of the same essence as the Father. It is the God, the Son, who writes in the same authority and the same power as the Father. And this is clearly portrayed in verses 26 and 27. Look at your Bibles, chapter 2, verses 26 and 27, where Jesus says to him, I will give authority over the nations and he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces as I also have received authority from my father. Jesus, the son, has been given all authority, authority of the father and has the power to both grant blessing and delegate authority. To grant blessing and delegate authority to the righteous. And to judge and bring condemnation upon those who are rebelliously wicked. Further depictions of Christ are given at the end of verse 18 where John writes of Jesus. And he says, his eyes are like a flame of fire. And his feet are like burnished bronze. As you might guess, if you look at ten different commentaries, you sometimes can find ten different meanings of or, or, or ideas of what this means. But turn with me to to do or rather to Daniel chapter ten. Daniel chapter ten. In Daniel chapter ten, we have a description that meets us just where we're at as we consider Revelation two eighteen. Here Daniel is terrified by this, by, by what he sees and describes it for us. He says in Daniel 10, beginning at verse 5, I lifted my eyes and looked. And behold, there was a certain man dressed in linen, whose waist was girded with a belt of pure gold of Uphaz. His body also was like beryl. His face had the appearance of lightning. His eyes were like flaming torches. His arms and feet like the gleam of polished bronze. And the sound of his words like the sound of a tumult. Or rather, a roaring. A little later, we're told in Daniel 10 that he feared. He trembled. He fell to his face and Christ told him to stand up. Jesus' desire would have been that the church in Thyatira was going to respond or should respond just like Daniel. As these words come out of Christ's mouth to the church in Thyatira, his desire is that Thyatira would respond the very same way Daniel did. He would, they would fall straight upon their face in fear, knowing that this God, their God, who comes to them, is coming to them as a judge, as one who is not pleased with their actions, but needs to confront them. Jesus is about to explain to them that he knows their deeds Remember, he's, he's walking among them. 
He comes to them in fierce opposition with all the authority of an all-knowing king. In regard to his feet being like burnished bronze, this likely symbols his purity and judgment. Our God always judges righteously. He walks among the churches. He walks among them knowing their deeds and will bring to each church exactly what is due her. What would the Lord bring to Anchor Bible Church? What is due us? We are individuals, but we are a corporate entity. We are the church. Jesus, speaking of his perfect judgment and his authority, says this in Luke chapter 12. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is, hypocr- which is hypocrisy. But there is nothing covered up that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Accordingly, whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in the inner rooms will be proclaimed upon the housetops. I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more than, I'm sorry, have no more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. End quote. Here in Luke, Jesus comforts the crowds by letting them know that he knows of the wickedness of the Pharisees. But then he challenges the crowds by warning them to not be like the Pharisees. That's exactly what these letters are. In these letters are, are descriptions of Christ. There's commendations. There's encouragements. And then there's condemnations. And what Christ is taking, what Christ is doing is he's taking each one of these churches and he's holding them up for us. He's holding them up for us so that we may get a good look at them. And we may take note of all of the commendations, all of the exhortations, that we may be blessed by all the promises, but that we might be challenged by the condemnations. And that they may compel us to fear. As Jesus addresses Thyatira, he reveals that he knows all about them. And we know that. we That is something we speak of often. He is our sovereign God. He is omniscient. He knows all things. He, he sees through us. He, he knows our thoughts before they're our thoughts. He knows what we're going to say. He knows exactly what we're going to do. He, he knows it all. But yet he, he takes that truth and he drives it home deep into each church. I know where you are at. And here, to the church in Thyatira, he wants them to brace themselves for what they are about to hear. But before that, he does bring some encouragement. Let's look at our second point, Christ's commendation and Christ's condemnation. Now, to this church, Jesus provides them with six commendations. Six commendations that we see in verse 19. Six reasons that they might be encouraged. He says, I know your deeds. I know your love, faith, servants, perseverance, 
And I know that your deeds of late are greater greater than at first. Simply means that they are making outstanding progress. And then for us, don't we stop to evaluate ourselves and, and consider our good deeds, our, our love, our faith, our service, our perseverance isn't one of a, a, a isn't a wonderful way to determine and to evaluate our own spiritual growth and maturity is to see how we per- persevere through trials. I once failed here, but but this time I've I've succeeded. God has upheld me. I, I've applied the scriptures. It's a good way to evaluate ourselves. And and that last one, your deeds of late are greater than at first. Wonderful ways to examine ourselves to see how we're doing in our relationship with Christ, how we are excelling. As this church evaluated herself, she considered all of her positives. All the things that she was doing well. And somehow could not see what she was doing wrong. She evaluated herself by her appearance from the outside, neglecting to consider the inside. But even worse, when she was shown what she was doing wrong, she refused to admit it. Look with me at verse 20. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things Sacrifice to idols. I gave her time to repent. And she does not want to repent of her immorality. What Jesus does is he reaches deep, far back into the past. And compares this church in Thyatira to a wicked woman in church history. And history in general. This woman, Jezebel. Jezebel became the queen of one of the most wicked kings, actually the most wicked king of Israel, Ahab. And Ahab's infatuation with his queen allowed her to introduce even greater wickedness into Ahab's life as well as into the nation of Israel. Jezebel polluted Ahab in the city of Jezreel with Baal and Asherah worship. Baal was the male god of the Phoenicians and its worship included the sacrifice of oxen, crying out and dancing and self-mutilation according to 1 Kings. Asherah was a goddess known by the sensual worship of her followers. And just like the original Jezebel, the Jezebel of Thyatira led God's people. She led God's people, the bondservants of God, astray so that they would commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. Jesus condemns the church and its leadership for tolerating the woman Jezebel. Now, this woman is a prophet. Well, what kind of prophet is she? Who proclaims her to be a prophet? She does. This woman calls herself a prophetess, but she is not a true prophetess. She is only self-proclaimed. 
God's people will know a true prophet. The true, the prophet, or in this case, the prophetess, does not need to convince others that she is or a prophet. The self-proclaimed prophetess teaches and leads the people of God. These were things that God, through the Apostle Paul, spoke against in 1 Timothy chapter 2. And you're all familiar with this, but it does bear reading. 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul writes, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. But women will be persevere through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. So this Thyatiran Jezebel, she led the church into sin without opposition from those in the church, including and maybe even especially the church leadership. They let Jezebel have her way to lead God's people astray unopposed. We are not told of the specifics of the sin discussed here. Whatever it was that the immorality or the things sacrificed to idols, Jezebel considered them okay, but the faithful Christian and student of Scripture would not have. Bears us to, to stop and consider that for a moment. Much like what we studied last week, these appear to be issues that had some element, some twinge of a, of, of a gray aspect to them where some believe that it's okay to partake in this thing and still be a lover of Jesus Christ. There was some element of, of syncretism here that, that people were struggling being able to see, is this okay or is this not okay? I think we've experienced this in the not too distant past. As we, as different things come up, different teachings, different views on society, different views on culture begin to bubble up into our world and we wonder, is this okay for the church to be a part of? Is this not okay? Is this something we must speak out against? Is it something that we must not? The Thyatiran church was living too closely to the world. They were living too closely to the world and they could not tell what was good or what was evil. They began to give themselves over. If this teaches us anything, it teaches us that we must cling closely to Christ. We must find His Scriptures our treasure. We must be men and women of the truth. We must hold strongly to our, our biblical convictions. Even when others around us do not hold to them. You know anything not done of faith is sin. You must be convinced. You must be convinced. What happens is, is you're, you're not convinced, but then someone else next to you, someone you respect, someone you believe, understands the scriptures, knows the truth, someone around you begins to say, but it's okay if I do this. 
But you yourself aren't convinced. But you follow their lead. You believe that they know better than you. And if you are not convinced and you give in to what they're doing and you follow their way, you are in sin. We must hold closely to, cling closely to Christ. We must hold to our biblical convictions and we must call out sin even when we stand alone. Jezebel would not repent. She would not repent and those who followed her would not repent of their sins. And Jesus says in verses 22 and 23 that he will make Jezebel sick. He will make Jezebel sick. He will put her on a sick bed and those who sinned with her into great tribulation and death unless they repent. But in verse 24, Jesus expresses some gracious words to the true church in Thyatira when he says in verse 24, But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they call them, I place no other burden on you. These are the ones who held tightly to Christ. These are the ones who held tightly to their biblical convictions. These are the ones who who didn't even speak of the things, the evil things in in darkness or or in, in quiet. These are the ones who stayed away. These are the ones who were faithful. The church at large was was following after Jezebel in her ways. But the faithful, whom Jesus calls here the rest, were not. And he says, I place no burden on you. I place, place no other burden on you. What gracious words. Thyatira was weary. They were weary. They had to be weary. They had to feel heavy laden. But they had learned from Christ and now they enjoy or they enjoyed being under his yoke. Because it was easy. His burden light. The verdict was made and the sentence brought down upon Thyatira was severe. Although many in the church were not faithful, it was made evident that they were not the true church. But there were some who had not bowed down their knees to Baal. And Jesus has some words for them. And this brings us to our third point, Jesus' counsel and promise. Jesus provides his people with more Gracious words. And they come by way of command. But they're not harsh, nor are they overwhelming. Again, our third point, Christ's counsel and promise. In verse 25, Jesus says, Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast till I come. What you have, hold to it. What interesting words. It's, it's, 
you know, what comes to my mind is almost like a new believer, someone who just came to Christ. You don't need to know much, but what you have, hold on to it. Hold tightly to what you know. Don't worry about what you don't know, but hold on tightly to what you do. It almost pictures a Thyatiran church just having little left in their reserve. They're, they're tired. They're longing for the return of Christ. They just can't wait to be out of this world with, again, the burden of the world off of them, only wanting to focus and be with Christ. Christ's command to hold fast means to remain fully committed to, be fully convinced of, remain fully committed to that what you know. Don't worry again about what you don't know. Just be committed to what you do. Jesus is saying with, again, a compassionate heart, just just hang on. Just hang on. In seminary, I had a professor. We, we, would, we would take a class, some of us who just, I don't know, weren't, weren't thinking well, we would take a class in summer called Gladiator Greek. Um, and it was called Gladiator Greek because they, they did a, a year's worth, I think, a year's worth of Greek in, um, in, a, in a month. And, and we're all sitting there taking this class, all of us who are there, and, and just feeling like we're, we're, we're just dying. I mean, we're just, we're just dying. We're just, you know, we, we're just struggling to keep up with all that he's asking us to do. And my professor would, would do this. He would hold out his hands. And it, he called it gladiator Greek because he, he'd like to think of himself as, as a Caesar. Um, kind of strange, but that, that's just the truth of it. And he would go like this and we, we'd tell him, we're just struggling. He'd say, he'd hold out his hands in a cup and he'd say, I have you. I got you. You're in my hands. I will take care of you. That's what the Lord wanted the Thyatirans to remember. I have you. You are mine. No one will pluck you out of my hands. Remember what you know. Be faithful to it. Don't be concerned about what you don't know. Don't be concerned with what's around the corner. Each day is enough to be concerned about in and of itself. Let me carry you through. In verses 26 through 29, Jesus completes his counsel with promise. And he says in verse 26, He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces. As I also have received authority from my father and I will give him the morning star. The faithful believers here are to overcome compromise. They're to call out the sin of Jezebel. And when they do, and as they do, well, they, will, they will then in the future, in a coming day, reign with Christ in His kingdom. In order for them to receive these promises, they must persevere until the end. In order for them to receive these promises, they must persevere 
until the end. This is the condition which must be met in order for them to receive the promises. Sometimes when we hear that, it it, it strikes us like, wait, what about this idea of eternal security? What about this idea that once I am redeemed, I am redeemed, that no one can pluck me out of the Father's hand? Well, that remains true. But as we know, the evidence of, 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 of true salvation is persevering. God preserves us, yet we must persevere. It's two sides of the same coin. The promise offered here is the promise of us partaking, or rather the Thyatirans as well as us, but the Thyatirans partaking in Christ's millennial kingdom, first introduced in Psalm chapter 2. Jesus quotes from Psalm 2. He quotes Psalm 8, or Psalm 2, verse 8 and verse 9, to remind his faithful ones that they will partake of the kingdom. A time when Jesus Christ will rule from Jerusalem with a perfect rule and with perfect holiness and and in righteousness. Believers too will rule. They will rule as Christ does with His authority. Just as the Father delegated His authority to the Son, Jesus will delegate His authority to His children. Jesus completes His promise to His church with that of a morning star. The clearest reference to this phrase, morning star, is made a little bit later in the book of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 22, verse 16. Jesus says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Many ideas, many thoughts come to to commentators in regard to, excuse me, what this morning star is. And some believe that the idea of his dawning, they're looking for the light of Christ to come at his dawning and his return. Um, some believe other other elements, but what's clear is that Jesus Christ refers to himself here as the bright morning star. Uh, we, we could attempt to to read into it and and make and we know we know that light refers to the gospel and and to the word of truth and all of that that it has a light element to it. But here it's Jesus Christ, and I and I I don't see why there's any reason to make anything else up here other than saying the promise to the Thyatirans is that if you do well. If you, if you fight, hold on tightly to the end, then hold on to Christ and you will receive Christ. He is the promised gift. Jesus ends this letter as he ends each of his letters to the seven churches. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Like all of Christ's words, like all of Scripture, these words must be heard and they must be heeded. 
The Thyatiran church is a church that is full of sin. The true church lies within this professing church, has neglected to call sin, sin. So the professing church is a sin-filled church, but within that larger body is the true church that is not given in. They have not followed the broad path. They have not followed the example of others before them. They held tightly to Christ. They held tightly to Scripture. They would not give in. But they should have called the ungodly to faithfulness. It appears at some level, because we don't have any example of of anybody here outside of Christ calling the unfaithful to repentance. Only Christ called them to repentance. We don't have an example of others. Why did they remain quiet? Why did the church in Thyatira remain quiet? Did they indulge in the same sin for a time? One of my pastors used to say, if you listen to a pastor preach for a while and if there's a constant theme that he overlooks, that he shies away from, that he stays away from, that he doesn't preach on, maybe he's dealing with that sin. Is it possible that the Thyatirans that they indulged in the same sin for a time and at this point they just felt hypocritical. They felt maybe that they couldn't call out righteousness or call out sin. They couldn't call them toward righteousness. Did they remain quiet out of fear? Did they remain quiet because they did not know how to respond? That's likely or at least possible. Does Jesus overlook their sin, their fear, And their ignorance, no, Jesus will not. He can't, but he does provide them forgiveness and hope as they hold fast until he comes. Brothers and sisters, when we we must call out sin, we must be faithful to call out sin. We we must. We cannot not call out sin. Yet we can do it faithfully. We don't need to be a clanging gong. We don't need to be abrasive. But we must be honest. We must be courageous. We must fear only one. The Lord has given us all that we need for life and godliness. We must remain faithful just as he himself is faithful. We are in a unique time and we all know this. There are aspects of the fire and tyrant church I'm certain are true of us. Let us be careful. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your your word this morning. Such a long text to work through in one morning and and such a sobering and such sobering words from our savior 
Father, we, we are grateful. We are, we are humbled and amazed, Lord, that in your kindness, you called us to yourself. Father, the fact that we are yours is, is, is an incredibly humbling thought. Lord, we know that there is nothing within us that has earned or deserves your perfect and wonderful and beautiful salvation. But you've given it to us, Lord. Father, may we be faithful to you. Help us to be men and women who are careful to consider our walk before you. Father, where there is sin in in our lives and in our hearts, we pray that you would bring conviction. We pray, Father, that you would bring your truth to bear on our on us. And we pray, Lord, that you would bring brothers and sisters around us to keep us encouraged and to help us in our fight for faithfulness and that we may be a help to them as well. Father, bolster, bolster our convictions that we may live by them. And may we ever be strengthening and girding up our convictions as we become even greater men and women of the truth. Father, may we never do anything that lacks faith. Father, we are grateful. We are grateful for these letters to these churches. They are good good words for us to hear every aspect of them. And may we May we hear, may we hear all that you have for us. Father, bless us as we go about our day today. Bless our fellowship, Father. May it be sweet before you. May our time together bring great encouragement as we head out into a a new week that has trials and troubles of all kinds. Father, We praise you and we thank you for all things. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.